Lee to note all the various activities, particularly optimists this coming Friday. We have a very special speaker from OSHA, I think it's OSHA, at RIT on the Erie Canal, so I'm sure it'll be very good. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Join us for refreshments in Fellowship Hall after the service, and we'll begin our service with an extended prelude. Bruce.
Good morning and welcome to worship at the First Presbyterian Church of Pittsburgh. Please join us, friends, in the response to this call to worship. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. God executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free. The Lord watches over the stranger, upholds the orphan and widow, and opens the eyes of the blind. I will sing praises to the Lord as long as I live. Let us worship the God who lifts us all up. Praise the Lord.
please pray with me. God, whose freedom has no bound, we praise your name and seek to follow you. You bring home the dispossessed. You protect the widow and orphan. You provide hope to all who are downtrodden. We come into your presence, enlivened by your Holy Spirit, and full of new hope to give you the honor due your glorious name. Let your people shout for joy. Let them cheer and chant your name, singing of the path you take, so that others are welcomed into your embrace. Amen. I am probably not alone in coming here this morning to repent from having stayed up late to watch Saturday Night Live. But hear these words from 1 John. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. With this assurance, together let us pray. Merciful God of compassion and justice, take pity on us as we confess our sin. We are not the people Christ calls us to be. Riches possess us while widows and orphans go hungry. Your goodness is betrayed by our lust for power. Help us hear once again Christ's encouragement to be faithful. And through him, us turn away from our obsessions, addictions, and self-made prisons. By the next chapter of First John, we read, Children of God, I am speaking these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is good news. Praise be to God. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now. I want to thank Owen Oldfield for helping me out with worship this morning. You are quite accustomed to seeing our confirmands leading during the first Sunday of the month, but the Oldfields have said repeatedly that they enjoy leading worship with us, and it's my hope that other individuals who enjoy it and do it so well would also like to participate and we will be training you to do that. We have an opportunity coming up, courtesy of Bruce's own sister, who has trained theatrical talent to do just things like that. So if you're interested in sharing with worship, we welcome you. And thanks to Owen for doing such a marvelous job this morning. Our Old Testament lesson for today is taken from the book of Ruth. What a wonderful opportunity to hear from that wisdom and that narrative. And I invite you to hear God's word to each of us. 
Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now, here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, wash and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me, Naomi, I will do. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made Ruth conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women in the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's my pleasure and privilege and joy to welcome the children forward into the chancel for an opportunity to talk about this great story. Dress, Cassie. Good morning, Miss Wilson. How are you? Good morning, Miss Kilmer. Hi, CJ. How you doing, bud? Hmm. Let's see. How many of you still have great grandparents alive? Maybe you have some great grandparents alive. Great grandparents are awfully special. Did you know, for example, that our story taken from the Book of Ruth? talks about King David's great-grandmother, Ruth. We know from our biblical lineage that, of course, David's dad was Jesse. Jesse's dad was Obed. But we hear about not Obed's dad as much as we hear about Obed's mom, Ruth. I love the book of Ruth because it talks to us about the power of loving relationships. And we just read about how Ruth and Boaz came together and made this wonderful child and the relationship that they had with one another. Ruth's mother-in-law was the one who made that happen because she wanted the best for her daughter-in-law. Both Naomi and Ruth were widows. They had lost their husbands. But the love that the two of them had for one another was such that Ruth said, I will follow you wherever you go, Naomi. I love you that much. And Naomi, in turn, set up a marvelous, sustaining relationship for them so that they would be safe and not be in a very precarious, scary position as widows would have been in that time. Now, when this little baby boy 
David's grandfather was born to Ruth. Did you hear what the text said? The women all gathered around and said, A son has been born to Naomi. Wait a minute. Who's Obed's mom? Ruth is. You're right. So why did the women all gather around and say, A son has been born to Naomi? I don't get it. I know. That's the answer. That's the answer, Aaron. That's right. I don't get it. A son has been born to Naomi. Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law. Naomi is Obed's grandmother, and not even by blood. A son has been born to Naomi. (gasps) Wait a minute. Maybe the important thing isn't the bloodline. Maybe the important thing isn't the biology of it. Maybe the important thing is the power of the loving relationships. Naomi cared so much about Ruth. Ruth cared so much about Naomi. Naomi cared so much about this new life that God had given to them both. This little baby Obed, as cute as each one of you on your littlest days. Thanks, Aaron. The power of loving relationships, friends. That's what this story tells us about. And you know what's going to happen a little later in this worship service? You guys are going to be downstairs with Mr. Craig and all your fabulous teachers. But we're going to be hearing about new officers that are elected. And those extended relationships that these officers are coming into to build are really important There may not be blood amongst the officers that we're going to elect, but they are being woven into the fabric of the life of this church. As a matter of fact, some of these officers are people that you know. How many of you know Elena and Zach Travis? See, lots of hands, right? A lot of you know Elena and Zach Travis. They're going to be elected as youth elders and youth deacons. As early as ninth grade, you can serve as a youth elder or a youth deacon. And talk about how they can be special. Their mom's already an officer, and they're going to be woven into the life of being an officer of this church. Just as Naomi was to Ruth, their mom can be as to them, and we as a community can be that extended loving relationship to one another. God made us that way, to love one another, to watch out for one another in all kinds of circumstances. Pretty fabulous, don't you think? I think so too. So shall we pray about it before you head into the kingdom? Can you grab a hand? There you go. Or an elbow. Or a finger. Or a paper clip. Whatever connects you, I don't care. God in heaven, we give you thanks for your love. For your love that goes over everything. Relationships bloodlines, families, church communities. Help us to be the people that you created us to be, connected, loving, forgiving, gracious, generous. And we pray all this in the name of the one who taught us so well. Amen. Have a great time in the kingdom, friends.
What a wonderful story about uh, these two widows. It's so romantic, you know. But it's hard to imagine a mother-in-law saying to her daughter-in-law tonight, take a bath, put on your best dress, some wonderful perfume, you know, get out the best stuff, uh, you know, that midnight in Jerusalem. uh, Then go down to the threshing floor and he will tell you what to do. We're going to read about another widow. We don't even know her name. It's her encounter with Elijah. Listen for the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there, gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I might drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. She said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar, a little oil in a jug. I'm now gathering a couple of sticks so that I can go home and prepare it for myself and my son, that we might eat it and then die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
seated, friends. Well, as you probably have detected, there is a theme of widows running through all of our scriptures today. Even Psalm 146 mentioned widows and orphans, all of these from the lectionary for today. And so, without further ado, Mark 12 also tells the story of a widow, one that's rather quite familiar to many of us, and something that is often used in stewardship times to talk about the widow's might. But I want you to be aware of what has happened before this in the text. Mark 12. As you know, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. There's only 16 chapters. So Jesus is pretty far along in his life. As a matter of fact, he's entering into the last week of his life. He's back in Jerusalem. He's got this last-ditch effort to try and teach people about what he means by the kingdom of God and the upended paradigm that one finds in the kingdom of God. He's already predicted his death three times. He's trying to teach them in parable about how to be faithful and how to live a whole life. I invite you to hear God's wisdom to each one of us. As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then Jesus called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Praise God. Such a blessing to have you all singing for us. My parents' pastor in my home church in West Virginia had written on his tombstone, count your blessings and make your blessings count. You all do that. Thank you. A widower shared this wisdom with me. Living is hidden within dying. In the visible world of nature, a great truth is concealed in plain sight. Diminishment and beauty, darkness and light, death and life are not opposites. They're held together in the paradox of this hidden wholeness. In a paradox, as you might remember, opposites do not negate each other. They cohere in mysterious unity at the heart of reality. Deeper still, they need each other for health, just as our bodies need both to breathe in and to breathe out. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, Life starts all over again when it gets crisp in the fall. But in a culture that prefers the ease of either-or thinking to the complexities of paradox, we have a hard time holding opposites together. We want light without darkness, the glories of spring and summer without the demands of autumn and winter, and the Faustian bargains we make fail to sustain our lives. Widowers and widows know this wisdom. They've earned it the hard way. And their wisdom is hidden in plain sight because the very mention of widowhood makes us uncomfortable. Do you notice it right now? Are you feeling a little? What's she talking about? Our associations with being widowed are morbid, creepy, and negative. Think of the black widow spider or the literary image of the crown. This strong, visceral reaction we have to widowhood is the very reason that widows are archetypal. In literature and in art, widows are metaphorical for anybody who is without power the marginalized, or the oppressed. And our discomfort with discussing widowhood stems from our fears, our unwillingness to be inconvenienced or made to feel awkward, and ultimately, our guilt. So what is it that we fear? Well, the obvious answer is that we fear death, both ours and the death of those that we love. We've just come through Halloween where we do everything where we can to caricature death and to diminish this gruesome grip of fear that it has over us. We dress up as the Grim Reaper. We put our kids in absolutely adorable costumes so that we can hold on to the innocence and the hope that they represent. We feel as if we have stared death in the face and laughed at it. Ha! But as I listen to widows and widowers, and I'm sure you have too, it's not necessarily the fear of death that really bothers us. 
Many say that death would be a welcome respite. And how much of our scripture points to the glorious afterlife and the promises that we have of greeting one another again face to face. No, death is not the thing that freaks people out and makes them fearful. What we fear is loneliness. To whom do we talk at the end of the day? Who helps you to fasten that top button or pull up the zipper or get the necklace on or help you with the bracelet or the bow tie? To whom do you share? How can you get your daily life-giving doses of hugs? It seems as if the party invitations all dry up because who wants a third wheel? How do people talk to you about the dearly departed. Yes, we fear loneliness. And that loneliness leads to despair or indifference. And perhaps even more dire, guilt. We feel guilty that we're still alive. Or we feel guilty, if we're the one trying to extend the dinner party invitation, that our loved one is still alive. And our guilt makes being around widows and widowers inconvenient, uncomfortable. Not our first choice on a Friday or a Saturday night. Widows are mentioned 89 times in the Bible. The term widow in the biblical literature has a more specific meaning in those texts than our English word conveys. We use in Hebrew almana and in Greek chera. And that's what is known as widows. But in that time and age, the women designated by these terms weren't merely someone whose husband had died. You see, the widow at that time lived outside the normal social structure in which every female lived under the authority of her male household. The widow was entirely different. She was responsible to and for herself. The structure of ancient society, as you know, was kinship-based and patriarchal. And marriage within that society represented a covenant, a contract, made between two families, not just two individuals. When a woman married, she passed from the authority of her father's household to the authority of her husband's household. And when her husband died, her status was determined not by her family of origin's household, but by her husband's household. Some even perceived widowhood as a disgrace. You see, death before old age was mistakenly viewed at that time as a judgment upon sin, and the reproach extended to the surviving spouse. A pointed finger. How did your spouse die? So the widow's independence from male authority gave her a very precarious social position. And in more than half of its occurrences, the word widow is linked with orphan, or alien. Existing outside the normal social structure, these three groups were susceptible to oppression, injustice, and exploitation. Much as I would posit to you today, they still are. We see this in our text about Ruth, Naomi, and the widow that Elijah visits. So what does Jesus say about widows? Well, Jesus was quite sensitive to the widow's marginal existence. From the stories Jesus told about widows, like today's tale of the widow's might, 
We know that this threatened existence continued into the time of his life. He restored life to the only son of the widow of Nain. He declared that the widow's might in today's reading exceeded in value the large gifts of the scribes of the temple treasury, suggesting even that some of their wealth was obtained by eating up the property of widows. Yes, those widows, widowers, are symbolic of the marginalized, the oppressed, those shut out from power. And when we avoid widows, widowers, orphans, and aliens, and all that they represent, we severely limit ourselves to that which we know, that which makes us feel comfortable. Have you ever noticed what Jesus did around those who only wanted to feel comfortable? Jesus comforted the afflicted, but he afflicted the comfortable. Jesus taught early Christians that they were to single out widows as recipients of social welfare and established an organized means of caring for this group of women. You see, early Christians didn't focus on just charity. You know the old standard. You don't just give a person a fish. Jesus taught not just teach them how to fish, but set up whole systems whereby people can be educated on a dependable and sustainable basis how to fish. Jesus was concerned with the societal structures and the systemic change that would lead to greater self-realization for all marginalized and oppressed peoples. Dr. Lisa Randall is a physics professor at Harvard and the author of numerous books, including her latest, Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs, The Astounding Interconnectedness of the Universe. Dr. Randall sees dark matter as the key to the universe and, surprisingly, the key to human empathy, as Jesus taught his disciples and us. She likens dark matter, matter present throughout the universe that is invisible to us because it neither emits or absorbs light. She likens dark matter to other entities that remain unnoticed by us, but these unnoticed entities influence the workings of our world. Who of us pays attention to the bacteria in our bodies, which incidentally outnumber our human cells by a factor of 10? Or who keeps up with the myriad internet communities and subcultures that thrive outside of our awareness? For example, if you want to know anything about Pokemon or Minecraft, you can just ask any of our kids. I'm not certain that any of us knows much about it. Randall describes how unnoticed dark matter and unnoticed realities around us can color our perceptions. We cannot understand what we cannot experience or see, including the often hidden cultural forces that animate other people and their communities. These blind spots challenge scientists, but usually in ways that the scientists are quite attuned to. They have scientific method. They have processes. They have to check their theories and test their assumptions. So with those blind spots, they're looking for them. We don't always. The world looks entirely different at the scale of the atom, or the so-called God particle, the Higgs boson particle, than it does when it's viewed from a chair or 
way far away from the perspective of space. This is why the rules of quantum mechanics can appear unintuitive or utterly illogical to us. They're utterly unfamiliar to us. We don't have that perspective. Most of us mistake our own perspective, shaped by our subjective and limited perception, for the absolute reality of the entire world, right? Right? I see it. Don't you? Isn't it obvious? Questioning this assumption is what advanced research on dark matter and questioning the assumption of our own correct self-perception is the only thing that has ever advanced human empathy. It's hard to understand why somebody behaves differently from someone, from us, but we have to consider the other person's perspective. Walk a mile in somebody else's shoes? It may be uncomfortable for us to do, but Jesus models it for us. He encourages us, he calls us, and he equips us to take that active role. Yes, empathy may be difficult and uncomfortable, but it's crucial to the progress of both science and society. Empathy demands our making a deliberate and consistent effort to step outside of our familiar, comfortable frames of reference. And only then can we synthesize different perspectives, observations, and experiences. This synthesis is the very heart of creativity. We never would have had a marvelous extended prelude from Bach were he not able to step outside of himself. We would never have great art. We would never have any of the, the wonderful things that each of us loves to do because we have turned it into an art if we hadn't stepped outside of ourselves and synthesized that into something good and new. Our moral, spiritual, and developmental imperative is to grow beyond our discomfort. And we know from nature around us, if we're not growing, we're dying. Living is hidden within dying. Back in August, the Mitchells made our annual pilgrimage to my folks' house. We had a glorious week of break. We needed it. And I'm sure each of us does. We get to summer and think, oh, enough of the winter. And during that week, we were blessed with great weather. Only one day did we see a rainy afternoon, and so we decided to make the most of it, and we headed to the local theaters and treated ourselves to a movie in a movie theater. When's the last time any of you had a chance to do that? We saw Disney's Inside Out. It's a lovely film about the emotions that we all carry inside of us. Joy, sadness, anger, fear, disgust. Loved the character disgust. She just pulled it off like every teenager ever would have. Disgust. Each one's personified. Joy is this luminous being. Sadness is this blue little girl. Anger was this stocky man in red with flames shooting from his head that tipped off at every, every possible provocation. The emotions were in this little girl, Riley, who is the main character, and they wanted her to be happy. At one point in the film, they even banished sadness so that Riley could be happy. But then they came to see that it's not possible to be whole when we banish any part of us. 
Each emotion has a role in the redemption story. Eventually, they come to embrace the role for each of them and recognize that Riley can only be made whole if they use everybody's gifts. Now, somewhere in the middle of the movie, I began thinking about something a little more meaningful. I want to be going beyond happy. What we each desire, each one of us, is to be whole. When we walk into bookstores, we find next to the religious section, the spirituality section, and the business section, the enormous self-help section. (laughs) Self-help is big business. If you look at Amazon, it lists some 1,635 titles just under happiness self-help. Billions of dollars are spent on this industry and the promise of happiness. Books, podcasts, workshops, seminars, and retreats promise many things. They tap into many different religious traditions, spiritual teachings, and some with no discernible tradition whatsoever. But at their core, they all have one thing that they're trying to promise. We'll teach you happiness. The promise of secret, esoteric, hidden knowledge is not new, friends. Think about the Brooklyn Bridge that I can sell you. The Greeks, the Persians, the Indians all talked about these secrets. Texts attributed to both Jesus and Muhammad depict them as rising to a mountaintop with their worthy disciples and telling them the secret to happiness. We have it in our Markan text, as a matter of fact, and it's one of the reasons that scholars say that Jesus always wandered around saying, don't tell anybody. Spiritual secrets can be taken very seriously. The very act of sharing these secrets helps to build a sense of community, of intimacy, of belonging. And who of us doesn't want to belong? Well, these days it seems that there's always a market for the secret to happiness. Everyone's peddling that secret. Do this. Buy that. Repeat this mantra. Rub that oil. Place this crystal. Pray these words. I think happiness is too small of a goal. Now, I don't mean to say that everyone or anyone who speaks of happiness is a fake or a charlatan. Teachers as great as His Holiness the Dalai Lama have book titles like The Art of Happiness. But I want to poke at this balloon of happiness. Are we settling for something too cheap? I wonder if this happiness quest helps us avoid the real suffering and anger, the sadness, and every other emotion that makes us human. What if this quest for individual happiness gives us the chance, the excuse, to avoid the very grit of life that we all have to confront at some point? What if we aim for a life that's only half of it? We want a whole life. All of it. Drink ye all of it. Living is hidden within dying. Now this helpful notion that living is hidden within dying is surely enhanced by the visual glories of autumn. What artist would ever have painted a season of dying with such a vivid palette if nature and God's paintbrush hadn't done it first. Does death possess a beauty 
that we who fear death or loneliness find ugly and obscene? Does death possess a beauty that we cannot see? How shall we understand Autumn's testimony that death and elegance and wisdom go hand in hand? For me, the words that come closest to answering those questions are the words of Thomas Merton. There is in all visible things a hidden wholeness. When we so fear the dark that we demand light around the clock, there can be only one result. Artificial light that is glaring and graceless, and beyond its borders, a darkness that grows increasingly complex and fearsome. Split off from each other, neither darkness nor light is fit for human habitation. Can you imagine the solitude of a dark room or the never-ending light that is akin to torture? But if we allow the paradox of darkness and light to be, the two will conspire to bring wholeness and health to every living thing, even the marginalized and oppressed. Autumn constantly reminds me that my daily dyings are necessary precursors to new life. If I try to make a life that defies the diminishments of autumn, the life I end up with will be artificial at best and utterly colorless as well. But when I yield to the endless interplay of living and dying, darkness and light, life and death, I am given up to a reality that is eternal, colorful, fruitful, and whole. A whole life, not a half-life. May we all heed the widower's wisdom. Living is hidden within dying. Thank you, Carrie, for bringing to us these four widows, two named, two of them absolutely unnamed. I think that in society we like to pity them, but we're really humbled by them and their faithfulness and their generosity and their sharing of themselves. Um, Maybe that's what we ought to do. Let's prepare to do that with this prayer. God of grace and glory, all we have is yours. You shower blessings upon us out of your goodness. You redeem us from evil one and rescue us from the pit of our own selfishness. We come before you seeking to be faithful to Christ's call, accept what we offer as signs of our yearning to be better caretakers of your creation, including all those marginalized like widows and orphans.
Carrie, we have been asked to pray today for Ann Double because um, she has just received news. She has lung cancer and is beginning treatment. Ann is uh, Judy Johnson, um, Brother Bill's wife. We've been asked to pray for Iris Lydiot as she enters... Um, Uh, kingdom of heaven. Please pray for her family, Stella, Phil, Ellen, at this difficult time. And we've uh, had prayer requests for Lori Winderlich. She also has been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which can be very painful. These are indeed things that we lift before God, praying, expecting miracles, perhaps miracles that we don't anticipate. Tim Smith shared with me in between services, having heard the heavy matter that I brought before you today, that he gives thanks every day, as do I, for the counteract, the counterpart to loneliness, a half-life to fear and despair. He gives thanks for this community that sustains one another in prayer, that supports one another with company, fellowship, mission, ministry, education efforts. That's where God brings us our blessings and makes our blessings count. We have something to count, and that might be the upcoming 55th birthday of Dr. James Douthat on Saturday. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear James. Happy birthday to you. I think we sufficiently embarrassed him now. (laughs) We also give thanks and praise that Bob Peet came through his surgery on Friday and is home already, a a stent successfully placed. We give thanks and praise for the beautiful flowers in the chancel that Jane and Randy Hunter place on an annual basis, remembering Shalise Hunter Carmona and the grace that she brought to your family and to ours by extension. Thank you. We also give thanks and praise for an incredible nominating committee that brings before you a full slate of officers that Bill Smith and his committee will present to you shortly. And we give thanks and praise for new members who will be joining us today. I would encourage those new members and their deacons and the elders who are working with them to stay behind after worship service and after our congregational meeting to stay right here in the sanctuary, please. Please join me in prayer, friends. God of all times and seasons, great and wonderful are all your works. Through the sacrifice of many before us, we may choose this day to gather and worship you. We bow in humble thanksgiving and acknowledge your grace, not just to widows and orphans, but to each one of us. As shadows lengthen and daylight hours grow shorter, praise of your name still comes forth from our mouths. 
As generations before us pled for your mercy, so we today entreat your goodness. We pray for modesty as we inhabit the, the earth's surface. Save us from destroying our home. Endow all our leaders, newly elected or otherwise, with wisdom and a love of creation. Fill them with zeal for peace, for compromise, for civil discourse. And help us to all recognize the graciousness of your abundance and share from that confidence. We pray for those new officers and new members in our midst. May they feel your guidance bringing them a peace and joy in their response to your grace. And we pray for those whose hearts are heavy today, from new griefs or old ones remembered. And we pray for those seeking your wholeness and healing. May it come and may we recognize it, even if it's not that specifically for which we prayed. We pray all this confidently because we pray it in the name of the one who prodded us and equipped us to be empathetic and gracious, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Friends, we're going to sing verses 1, 2, and 6. 1, 2, and 6. Enjoy a full life, full of the empathy that God has given to each one of us, full of the grace and deep joy that comes from embracing it. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each and every one of us this day and forevermore. Amen.
Those of you who are part of the congregation can be seated for the election of officers. This is a special meeting of the congregation. Madam Clerk, I see that you are here. I declare that there is a quorum. And um, as you know, that uh, meetings of the congregation are to open with prayer. And uh, I think that your minutes should indicate that this uh, congregational meeting was open with a complete service of worship. I do have books of prayer with me. This is called the Book of Common Worship, Pastor's Edition. Uh, This is the Book of Occasional Services, and it's kind of interesting that um, these great books, all filled with prayers, have no prayers in them for a congregational meeting. This old book does. Uh, My favorite old book for pastors, looking like these, had a prayer in the back of it, the most used prayer I knew. It was a prayer for a three-foot putt. In this one, there is a prayer for a congregational meeting. Eternal God, you called us to be a special people to preach the gospel and show mercy. Keep your spirit with us as we meet together, so that in everything we might do your will. Guide us lest we stumble or be misguided by our own desires. May all we do be done for the reconciling of your world, for the upbuilding of the church, and especially for the greater glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Bill Smith, we're ready to receive your report. On behalf of the nominating committee, we'd like to say thank you for all of you that uh, answered our calls and uh, spent some time talking with us about the possibility of becoming a church officer. We appreciate that. The candidates we have for today, and if you please rise after I repeat your name so that those that might not know you will associate a person with a name. Um, for session, Laura Bachman, Tanya Van Dorn, Barbara Smith, Youth Elders, Adam Peterson, Elna Travis. For trustees, uh, just a moment. Bill, yes. we'll really need to take action on these as seriatim, okay. uh, which means by board. And so we do take the elders first, followed by the deacons. And in this case, I would declare that the floor, this completes all of your nominations. This is for elders, yes. Right. Then the floor is open to receive any other nominations that might come from the congregation. Seeing none. Uh, I would ask for a motion that these um, uh, people be elected by the unanimous vote of the congregation. It's moved. There's a second. <clears throat> Any question? All in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed say no. It is so ordered. Okay. For uh, deacons, Jim Frame. Matt Lake, Mabby, excuse me, Debbie uh, Matrusha, not here. Okay, Chris Zimmer, Cindy Barbin, Nadine Wall. 
Tim Smith, 8.30. As youth deacons, Zach Travis and Jackson Mooney. Bruce? These are your nominations. Um, the floor is now open to receive nominations from the congregation. Seeing none, I would ask for a motion that these persons be elected unanimously. I heard a second in all of that. Okay. Seeing no objections, uh, all those in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed say no. It is ordered. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Trustees, Steve Fernays, Charlie Francis, Bill Bartok, Luke Wright, and Kristen Thon. Okay, Bruce. Thank you very much, Bill. Any additional nominations from the floor? Seeing none, I would ask for a motion that these persons be elected by acclamation. It's moved and seconded. I'm assuming you're ready to vote. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed, no. So ordered. Thank you, Bruce. That concludes Thank your you recommendations. Yes. I think that also concludes the order for business for today. Uh, we have something else that we have to decide, and that is we have to decide to end this meeting. So we do need officially a motion. <laughs> I will declare, because uh, the moderator can do this, I declare the meeting adjourned with prayer unless somebody wants to refute my declaration. <laughs> Let's all pray. Oh God, you are always with us when we face decisions so that in choosing we choose to do your will. Now we ask that you will bless those, especially who have been elected by the calling and voice of your church. Give to them the gifts they will need to fulfill these offices, and give to us the gracious support we need to offer as they seek to lead us. We ask it all in the Master's name. Amen.